This is In My Honest Opinion, a collection of NBR's top columnists from this week. Do you have something to add? Head over to nbr.co.nz and join the discussion. In his column this week, Simon Bridges looks at what a Vivek Ramaswamy US presidency might mean for New Zealand. It's a bold call, Simon, but you're predicting uh-huh. Ramaswamy will be the next president of the US. Well, you know, it's a bit of fun and a bit of a thought experiment, really. But all of that said, it's not quite as ridiculous as uh, it may seem. In fact, you know, it is a credible scenario, which is that on the Republican side, Trump is conviction, convicted of the uh, crimes that he's um, had laid against him. Uh, DeSantis was seen as the great hope, but he's very much fallen out of favour. And Ramaswamy is coming up probably as the third, possibly even second uh, contender. So in that scenario, of course, uh, unless something changed on the Democratic side, it would be a Ramaswamy versus Biden. And you've got to remember here, Ramaswamy is quite an interesting character, son of migrants, uh, a tech billionaire, quite an interesting uh, history there, uh, but a millennial. He's only in his 30s, which even to me sounds young. Uh, and she put that against a Biden, who, of course, is um, not a millennial. Um, it's it's quite an interesting uh, race. And, you know, you'd think that a telegenic young man uh, with sort of quite a compelling backstory could go very well. Yes, he does have some positives, it seems, but he's also very socially conservative. Um, he holds some views that would alarm many voters. Do you think, um, you know, it's good to have some views like that around the table, but for a president, uh, do you think he's got enough to get him over the line? Well, I suppose what's true is America is a very different uh, country or set of states that are almost their own countries than than New Zealand. And so, you know, there's a deep strain of conservatism there that we don't have. I think it is an interesting thought experiment to think what he would mean um, for for New Zealand. Do you think there's obviously much more than the social conservatism or sort of anti-woke uh, thing that he uh, that he plays on? Uh, economically, he's very dry, he's a real capitalist, but he's a free trader. And so you'd say, well, actually, on one hand, um, He's staunch on China. They all seem to be in the United States across the spectrum these days. Um, But also he he is a free trader. And so that means that for things like CPTPP and the prospect for us, as I wrote about um, in my last column, the prospect of of, of a greater trade with America, it could just possibly get somewhere under a Vivek Ramaswamy presidency. And the way right now, it seems like it's dead for a very long time. Then you get to a social conservatism. Really what I'm saying in the column is, is in playing around with that as we've seen and his shtick really is around um you know corporate america and the way it has at a level in quotes gone woke or socially progressive as a cynical play and a smoke screen screen to making um money um we've seen some backlash to that in recent times bud lights over there uh, dropped billions from its um, from its uh, numbers. Um, Coots Bank with Nigel Farage, an overreach by them in, in, in free speech terms. And even over here, uh, well, whilst I wouldn't want to overplay it, uh, with Spark uh, New Zealand and, you know, them changing tech in relation to, you know, but, but again, in quotes, tur- turfs and the issues around uh, that. And, and the question I rep- pose in relation to that is, is that the exception to the rule New Zealand? Where's the sort of social conservatism and that strand that has been there uh, in the past. Winston's not in Parliament. 
uh, act as libertarian, really, um, and national uh, certainly seems in retreat. And, you know, I think the point um, I'd make is actually in our media and our political circles and corporate uh, New Zealand, um, you know, is it problematic in terms of free speech? Is it problematic uh, in terms of a, a narrowing of the of of what what can and can't be said? Mm-hmm. And if we go back to trade, uh, do you think there's anything that Ramaswamy could promote or push over the line that would really benefit New Zealand? Yeah, I mean, if you think about trade for New Zealand, my last uh, column, um, there's a few uh, places left where we still don't have um, full free trade. Well, it's probably more than a few, but we certainly don't have free trade agreements. The big two are India and the United States. It's still a prize worth having. The problem is the pretty clear consensus over there and over here is, you know, don't hold your breath. They've become very much more protectionist, insular um, and hawkish um, and, and so not interested in these things. Now, you couldn't overstate that even a, a powerful president would be able to may wave a magic wand, uh, but because of the, the, the Senate and Congress and, and the need for these sort of things to get through those processes. But a more free trade president would absolutely economically be good for New Zealand and could lead to uh, more trade, uh, more prosperity for New Zealand. And what about the US-China relations? Could Ramaswamy uh, stir things up further or placate them? And what sort of influence could that have on the Pacific and New Zealand's relationship with China? Well, it's pretty interesting. I mean, right now, you could say um, Biden even, although perhaps more temperate in his remarks, um, he hasn't taken a step back, back really from where Donald Trump was at. You know, they're pretty uh, critical, the language... Um, is reasonably strong. They're trying to have some normal normality, but you know, absolutely, there's this to use the phrase decoupling uh, that people talk about. Ramaswamy is a continuation of that, although his language is very staunch as well. Um, you know, that that is a concern for New Zealand, um, in, in as much as you know, our exporters still very um, reliant on China. It's a big market. Uh, it buys our goods and we don't have other viable markets necessarily for them at this time. Simon, thanks for your time. Thanks so much. Like what you're hearing? Join the discussion with our member subscribers at our website, nbr.co.nz. Oppositions don't get voted in, governments get voted out. And that looks like the path Labour is on, Duncan Garner writes in this week's column. Duncan, perception's reality, you say? Mm. Um, what is the perception of the Labour government at the moment? Well, I think people are willing to give Hipkins a go in that whole New Zealand you know, fairness approach. You know, give him a go, he's, he's, give, give him a shot. And I think people have. And almost through no fault of his own, he's been presented with... A basket case after basket case after basket case of ministers misbehaving or doing something wrong, you know, against the protocol of the cabinet manual or whatever. And the latest one, Kitty Allen, um, has effectively reignited all of them, and it just packages it up as as a government that's in a woeful state and needs to be replaced. I, I, I don't, I don't, I've tried to find something good in them. I tried to find something good in them, and then I look at their their alleged next policy, which is something to do with GST or fruit and veggies, which is a twelve year old policy that Phil Goff was reheating in two thousand and ten, two thousand eleven. So, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I, it is a pretty brutal piece that writes them off. Uh, I think I think 
I think people need to just be honest about it. I mean, do look at them. Look at the shambles. Do you think they could have survived had it not been for the Kitty Allen I incident? I think Kitty, Allen's a, Kitty Allen is um, one of those um, lightning rods that just shows you not just incompetent, but maybe arrogant to boot as well, you know. Um, dogs tracking a justice minister who crashed your car. I mean, it's it's kind of the last straw um, uh, minister that goes, you see, and it, I mean, it highlights all the incompetence. It just brings it up again. I reckon you almost could have got away with those other ones. Um been charitable to Hopkins, so they managed it quite well, you know, got rid of them. It wasn't his work, it was Jacinda Ardern's messiness that she left behind from to clean up. This, though, was Hipkins' call. He brought her back into the cabinet. By all accounts, she was all ready for it, but she, was she really? Um, I also question the mental health stuff, but I, I find that it gets used as an excuse, and it means that people who are really suffering mental health uh, might be thinking, hang on a second, I've got real problems here. It, Labor's used it for decades, this, this excuse, and I, I just question it a bit. Yeah, either way, I mean, she obviously wasn't fit, but... In the light of it all, how's Luxon looking, in your view? Well, my view is that, that, that he's the guy that's keeping Labour in the race. You know, it's strangely, you know, there used to be a joke around that um, the best thing going for Labour was was um, Chris Luxon, and he kind of still is. You know, a really, imagine John Key in, in the first few years of the John Key era. Imagine him going up against this lot. Can you imagine what he'd be doing to them? He'd be speaking common sense and nailing them. But somehow Luxon seems to put his foot in every now and then. He's getting better. He's slowly improved in the last few weeks. I've noticed just his, some of his numbers are tracking better. But he's kept them in the race until now. You'd think that six years of largely incompetent, inexperienced lot would be dealt to. And Luxon's, he remember he's a first-term MP. Now, never forget that. First-term MPs don't go on to be promises after one term. He will be, it'll be record-setting if he does. A uh, bit of work to do, but the, I, I think National will look on track because Labour's so off track. I mean, they've got Mary Lambie and sort of um, finessing him. Do you mm. think you can actually teach someone how to be more friendly? Richard Griffin always told me when he was working with Bolger that you can move them, move a politician 5 to 10%. The rest of it's them. Look at David Cunliffe. Look at Phil Goff. You, you can only move the dial so much on these people. Um, the truth is, I reckon you get 5 to 10% movement. Helen Clark was told to smile with Brian Edwards. All these things that, you know, happen along the way. Yeah, it can make some make some difference. Um, with Luxon, though, he is who he is, you know. So we're apparently getting uh, GST off veggies and fruits. Yippee. What, what do you make of that policy? Uh, I think, um, well, it won't be just be that. I think there'll be some tax threshold movements as well. But it's too little too late. I mean, this is a, this is a party that has been staring at this recession and this cost of living crisis for two years now. And as we go into an election campaign, or in the middle of an election campaign, a long extended election campaign, they decide to reheat a 13-year-old policy uh, because it might be good for New Zealanders. If it was so good, if they meant it, they would have done it a year ago. New Zealanders are struggling now. The cost of living is now. They've taken the petrol, um, they've put the petrol, uh, petrol uh, tax back on, and then what, they're going to take off this on fruit and veggies. It looks like a hodgepodge, um, uh, a hodgepodge um, mess that they're making up on the hoof, you know? Duncan Garner, thanks for coming in. You're welcome. NBR are offering a free trial to newcomers. See what all the fuss is about on our flagship website, nbr.co.nz. Are e-scooters just for joyriding, or are they genuinely useful transport options in our cities? Writes Maria Slade in this week's Flipside. Well, Maria, in your flip side, you air a bit of your concerns with e-scooters. Why don't you just give us a bit of a summary with your beef with them? <laughs> I'm not a fan of the e-scooter, it is fair to say. I, I dislike walking through the town and having them sort of whiz past your elbow. And, you know, a lot of people don't pay a lot of consideration to speed and, you know, how they might be affecting other pedestrians. And it just sort of seems to me that they've just been allowed unfetted onto mm. the streets of New Zealand without a lot of consideration. And, you know, I do 
believe there's some genuine concerns about how they're being used. And it seems like the future for uh, e-scooters might be in danger given some of the consultation work that Waka Kotahi has undertaken. Well, that's right. This is the interesting thing. In 2018, Waka Kotahi put out a declaration saying that e-scooters were not vehicles. Uh, that means they don't need to adhere to all the usual rules of a motorised vehicle like a car or, or a motorbike or anything like that. And that was a five-year declaration, and that's coming up this September. And so they have to decide whether they're going to renew it or not. And so Wakakotahi has done a bit of a Paris, and they've, <laughs> as you know, Paris recently banned them after a poll, yeah. and uh, has said to people, we want to hear what you say about the use of e-scooters. And so there's an online survey running at the moment until April the 7th. They haven't gone as far as Paris as to say, if everybody says no, then we'll abide by that, and they're out. They've just said they'll listen to feedback and you know think about whether they are meeting our needs by being a transport option in New Zealand. Do you think they could actually be effectively banned here, depending on what action Wakakotahi takes? Well, if Wakakotahi does not renew this declaration, then yes, they effectively are, mm. because it means that you can only use them on private property, pretty much. Mm. So you could have a private scooter and ride it around your backyard, but... <laughs> I'm not sure there's much demand for people to be doing that, right? <laughs> no, that's right. So it would mean that you couldn't ride them down the city footpath, for example. So that would really set the cat among the pigeons. So it'll be quite interesting to see what Wakakotahi does. But it sort of strikes me that in other cities around the world, you know, they're all grappling with the same issue, but they're taking much different approaches to it than, than us. Like, for mm. example, in London, you aren't allowed a private scooter for a start. And secondly, they have allowed um, rideshare services such as Lime on, on a trial basis only and only in certain boroughs. And I think they're gradually rolling it out as they sort of get the data. And there's all sorts of rules, like riders have to be over 18, they have to have a provisional driver's licence at the minimum, they have to do a little course before they're allowed to start riding. Um, there, there, there's, there's speed limits on the devices that automatically drop down in certain areas and so forth. So there's a lot of restrictions around their use and, and we pretty much have none of those. Would you like to see some of those restrictions or more conditions placed on their use in New Zealand? It seems to me that we need to have a good hard think if they are genuinely going to be a transport option in our cities. Well, first of all, let's think about are they actually achieving what we want them to achieve. Mm. One of the uh, e-scooter operators said the other day that about 40% of the trips are used for com commuting. So what's the other 60% for? Is this tourists? Is this joyriding? What is it? And mm. is that what we want? Is that what we need them for? Also, there's a whole lot of other safety considerations like could we geofence them so that they're only allowed in certain areas? Um, should riders have to wear helmets? Should riders have to have be licensed or go through education in some way? I mean, none of this has been done here in New Zealand. So mm. I'm saying get out there and have your say on the Waka Kotahi pole. <laughs> Part of the attraction to e-scooters to me was always that they were rel relatively cheap and pretty accessible, but you could almost imagine that if you started to put more conditions on them, you know, a helmet, they could just become quite onerous and people might just might not even bother if we went down that path. Yeah, well, it's all a balance, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, we're trying to balance, um, you know, efficient mobility around the city with safety, with emissions reductions. And we need to decide what our goals are for a start. Mm -hmm. And secondly, how do we achieve that um, rather than sort of putting the cart before the horse and just saying, right, off you go on your e-scooters around the town, we'll see how that goes. Mm -hmm. You know, it seems to me there needs to be a bit more consideration of them.
I'm sure there'll be people who will talk about the transport benefits of e-scooters, you know, enabling people to get get around in a low emission sort of way. But is there any evidence or research that's been done about how widely used these even are as a mode of transport for people? Look, I'm not, not an expert, but I haven't seen anything in mm. my sort of Googling around the subject this week. And I feel like that's perhaps what's lacking here mm. in New Zealand. And also the safety consideration, because we saw that incident in Wellington on the weekend where a lithium-iron e-scooter battery exploded in an apartment and that person affected is, is in a critical condition in hospital and so you know people are taking e-scooters on trains, they're charging them in their apartments, the fire service advises that there's no way of putting the fire out you have to let the, the chemical reaction run its course, so that, that's a huge safety consideration and I do wonder whether we've even thought of that Well it's a fascinating topic, I'm sure you'll have more to say about it in the future, thank you for your time Thank you Test cricket is here to stay and will continue to pay its own way, reckons Martin Devlin in this week's Playing the Ball. Martin, you reckon the so-called demise of test cricket is nonsense? How come? Well, it was just that when you watch this Ashes series, I mean, it's got absolutely everything that you know you could wish for in sport. And certainly from a commercial perspective, um, I just have been just astounded at a, the demand for tickets, um, about the external publicity that it's been creating. Um, let's park the Football Women's World Cup for a week. I'll deal with that again next week. Um, but, yeah, like this five-test Ashes series, Hamish, uh, I'm not so sure all test cricket is as exciting mm. as this and, and all test cricket is going to be able to attract this kind of attention and audience. But why, while this series does and can, I mean, there's nothing at all that says when you've been watching any of this series that in any way – Test cricket has lost its audience in, in that part of the world. Certainly, I think it's probably increased it. It is the pinnacle of Test cricket, though, isn't it? Arguably, this series. Do you, I mean, yeah. it is because at the same time you had what India West Indies series on as well, which absolutely no one would have paid any attention <laughs> to. It. It. Well, I'm sure that they would have in India, and that's all they need because a couple of hundred million people there watching it, and you've got a fantastic audience, isn't it? Mm. But yeah, in terms of you know. Uh, well, we had England down here, remember, and that was at the start of the year, and that amazing test at the Basin Reserve had just about the whole country talking about it. So if you get it right, and, you know, the problem that Test Cricket's got is trying to keep, you know, you know, find other series like this. You've got the India-Australia one. You've got – and these, the same teams are coming up, haven't you? You've got England versus India. You've got South Africa versus England or South Africa versus Australia. Outside of those countries, I'm not sure what the future is, but, you know, as a sports fan looking at the Ashes, who wouldn't have wanted a ticket to go along and watch that? It's the pantomime that comes with it. It's mm. the theatre that comes with it. It's the drama that comes with it. And every sport in the world wants to create the kind of news that it becomes news. And as soon as, as I write in the column, the British PM got stuck in and <laughs> waded in over the Bearstow dismissal, that's gold dust for any sport that you're going to get talked about in the upper echelons of power. So the big three are sorted, England, Australia, India. What can the nations outside of that try and do to, to resurrect? I, know, I mean, New Zealand's had a very successful team for the last decade, arguably, haven't we, in Tess? And yet, you know, we still don't sell out games here. What what can we do? We need to get those big guys down here a bit more often, don't we? Well, you know, we have these five tests in that series. Uh, mm. We play four yeah. next summer. And then the summer after that, we play three. Thank you, David White, the CEO of New Zealand Cricket. Mm. Yeah. Yep. Yep. yeah, you've done this real, real, real. Pro- oh, look, I remember having an argument with him on here this year about it, and he was telling me that uh, we play nine or ten cricket tests a year. Um, well, if you go through the schedule, I don't know which one he looks at, 
Um, but the one that's real has lined us up four tests this year. Yeah. You know, as far as as far as that, you know, the um, the actual Ashes goes, you've got to have a contest in sport as part of it. But I think the history and tradition is what maintains this. Mm. You know, I've been reading about all of these footballers. There's mm. now one, um, Sam Maxima, um, has gone from Newcastle to join the Saudi Arabian League. You know, we've had the live golf thing try and take over. For as much money as these things are ploughing in, the problem with live golf is that no one's watching it. And the problem with that Saudi Football League is no one's going to be watching it. No. And, you know, you can have all the money in the world, but unless you've got eyes on it, well, then, I mean, it does really matter, I suppose, to them because they don't have to earn any money off it. For the rest of the sports to exist in the world, you've got to earn cash off it, which means you've got to create some outside noise outside of your sport. And that's what the Ashes have been perfect at doing. Plus, you've got heroes and villains. You know, we're not perfect, Hamish. You know, this whole kind of wokeness that is surrounding us where everyone's got to be somehow perfect. We love the villains. We love the anti-heroes, especially in sport. We've always loved the McEnroe. We've loved the guy that is mm. just mm. slightly off piste, don't we? And England, Australia. I mean, it just has all of these characters right in front of you. I mean, how on earth can you like the Australian cricket team if you're not Australian? No. Tell me one guy in there you like. I don't mind Pat Cummins. Solar panel Pat. Yeah, solar yeah, panel Pat. Exactly. Yeah. Get on your bike and ride to England, Pat, or did you fly first class, mate? You know, <laughs> give me all the climate change bollocks and you're up the front of the plane. So I guess in cricket, the Saudi Arabia money equivalent is T20 leagues, right? Indian T20 leagues now expanding all around the world. You saw, yeah. was it earlier this year, last year, Trent Bolt foregoing his New Zealand cricket contract to basically be a mercenary. I mean, that's the direction of travel, surely, isn't it, longer term? Yeah, well, I've been watching um, a little bit of him play in the Major League Cricket in the United States, coming in out of Texas and North Carolina. Mm. <laughs> yeah, please. Really? Um, yeah. In 20 years' time, are you and me going to be talking about that series? In 20 years' time, we're probably still going to be talking about this Ashes one we just watched. The players would be playing those series, though, weren't they? <laughs> well, but if that's what it's all about, Trent, if that's all it's all about to you now is just playing in these nonsense tournaments and, and who cares leagues and making yourself filthy rich, good. Yeah. Good. No, I agree. You know? um, right, who's going to win? Can the Aussie can Aussie do it tonight? Yeah, look, what are they, 135 for none yeah. um, with a whole day's play in front of them? Yeah. Well, it's going to be dramatic regardless, isn't it? And I just think... You know, as a neutral fan, I'd I'd love England to tie it up because I'd love that rock under the beach towel that would be Australia's. You know, that whole you know, did could we have won it if it hadn't have rained at Old Trafford? I think England will will, will rue looking back at this at some terrible decisions they've made. Probably day one of the first Test, declaring when they had Australia absolutely on the rack. Yeah. Um, but you know, look forward to the next one. I mean, it's been compelling five Test cricket matches in a row within the space of about a month. And it's just been absolutely brilliant sport to watch. And for everyone that's invested in this, all the commercial partners, you go around, if you could get hold of whoever it was from, you know, that, that have been, you know, sponsoring English cricket, LV or whatever it was, and, and ask them how, how they think they've done out of this. I bet they'd sit there and they'd be very happy indeed with the coverage that they've got and the mileage they've got for the, for the sponsorship money they've put in. And in the end, that's what makes it go around, isn't it? Yep. No, I hope you're right. I hope it does survive. Martin, thanks for your time. And that's been this week's In My Honest Opinion. To get your opinions heard, head on over to nbr.co.nz.